Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, your boy on social media, at MMALOTN, and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, where is your one-stop shop to make sure that you leave no stone unturned when you're doing your research for these upcoming MMA events. We got over 2,600 fighter profiles currently on there listed, over promotions spanning like ACA, CFFC, LFA, Fury FC, uh, KSW, Cage Warriors, all who have events coming up in the next two weeks. If you are looking to do your research and ensuring that you got as much tape and footage on these fighters as possible, make sure you guys check out the MMA Fight Archive. Seven-day free trial available to try it out for free so you don't have to spend a dime before realizing the worth of it. Make sure you guys check it out and hop on board as many other cappers, coaches, fighters, and analysts have already done so. Check the link in the description below. All right, before I get into it, obviously you guys can tell you can't see my face if you're watching the YouTube version of this podcast. It is because I am out visiting my in-laws for the next two weeks and I forgot to bring my webcam with me, but I do still have my uh, audio recording equipment that I can get this out for you guys uh, in a timely fashion. Uh, we arrived yesterday, um, getting acclimated to the cold that's out here, uh, but we got to catch up with the family and all that, and now it's down to work for the next couple of weeks, sprinkled in with some family time as well, but I'm still going to make sure that I have time to drop the content that you guys are obviously craving, but just minus the pretty brown face that you guys are uh, used to seeing on a weekly basis, so uh, you're going to have to settle for just my voice for the next two weeks but we should be back at it as normal when i get back uh in middle of november all right uh this week we're going over ufc sao paulo after the ufc had an off week last week um and uh, we got obviously a, a brazilian heavy card uh lfa also has a card the day before uh if you guys are looking for breakdowns for that check out the lock of the night patreon which also can be found in the description below i'll be breaking down every single fight on there with in-depth research on every single matchup as well as the best prediction and if i have any plays on those fights you'll know through the patreon as well but uh like i said uh, ufc sao paulo this week headlined by a heavyweight uh fight between uh, jilton almeida and Derek lewis we got a bunch of other great and interesting uh brazilian prospects sprinkled out throughout the card Obviously, we got Gabriel Bonfim in the Coleman event taking on Nicholas Dalby. We got Kyle Bahayo taking on Abis Magomedov. Uh, Ishmael Bonfim also going and throwing down against uh, Vince Pichel. Uh, the UFC debut of Victor Hugo, who just earned his contract off the contender series. And not to mention the uh, streaking and uh, very uh, intimidating Renat Fakhradinov taking on Elizio Zaleski Dos Santos. Uh, again, a bunch of other great fights on the card. Um, before we do break down the card, obviously, I'd like to go over the prediction recap for the previous UFC's uh, event, and it wasn't the greatest. You know, we had um, the lock of the night that night was uh, Nathaniel Wood. Uh, he was really up against it in terms of the fouls that he was receiving on behalf of Mohamed Naimov. Uh, you know, he was coming on very strong in that third round, uh, almost got the finish had it not been for the uh, glove holding of Naimov to. Uh, you know, keep some of those punches from landing as cleanly as some of the other ones were. And it probably could have ended up in a finish considering that Naimov was really sucking for win there. But overall, that's not what a lock of the night should be. A lock of the night should not have to come down to, you know, trying to get a finish and not being able to win the other rounds. Uh, even with all the fouls, not a good lock of the night play. But regardless, uh, we take an L there. 
concerning the regional events that we had last week as well, uh, the lock of the night prediction record now sitting at the end of uh, October is now 90 and 31 on the year for a 74% hit rate. Uh, again, still happy with that. Anything above 70, the target is obviously, uh, is obviously about uh 80%, 78 to 80%. Uh, we still got a couple events throughout the year to uh, cap that off and hopefully get it up some more. Uh, but again, UFC 294's um, uh, lock of the night prediction does not come through for us. Uh, we do have the uh, the dog of the night as well, which was Kamaru Usman. Made it way closer than a lot of people were expecting that fight to be. Uh, you know, came down, I believe, to a split decision. I could be off on that, but I know a lot of people really thought that Usman deserved to win that fight or at least get a draw considering a 10-8 Usman or uh, Hamzat first round. Uh, and then in the second and third rounds, I thought Usman did enough to win both those rounds, uh, but it was not meant to be. He ends up taking an L. Uh, we do pick up a dog of the night win on the regional scene with Cage Warriors, which brings our dog of the night record now to the year or on the year to 51 and 70 for a 42% hit rate. I believe we're still in the positive uh, in terms of uh, uh, the actual record. But if you want to know what those actual records are for the lock of the night and dog of the night in terms of units and ROI, make sure you guys check out the top three lock of the night and top three dog of the night candidate videos that I drop over the next couple days. Um, a reminder, if you are looking for LFA breakdowns, those will be on the lock of the night Patreon page, which will be, uh, I believe that fight goes down on Friday. So look for those breakdowns in the coming days. Uh, and yeah, sh lastly, shout out to the Godzilla wins folks, uh, providing your boy a platform to drop some written content for the public. Still, uh, we drop main event breakdowns on Wednesdays and then a three best money line article on Thursdays. Uh, I'll be sure to uh, post those in the description below. If you're watching this video on Thursday or Friday, check the description below and you should be able to see links directly to those uh, articles. But also if you're looking at any other sports, they are a great free website that you guys can check out uh, and get some action down on other sports. NFL obviously in the thick of it right now. NBA season just started as well. Make sure you guys check it out. Godzilla wins. Uh, all right. That's enough jibber-jabbering from your boy. Let's get into the breakdowns. First fight of the night, we got Kawi Fernandez making his UFC debut from the LFA scene, taking on Mark Casey. On the Fernandez side, he's currently coming off of back-to-back -back victories, but has also been a fighter that's been seldomly uh, active. Uh, he made his pro debut back in 2014, and now this will only be his 10th fight. You're talking about almost nine years of being uh, in the MMA game and only competing 10 times. Uh, he's only on a two-fight winning streak right now, making his UFC debut. Both those wins coming under 90 seconds. He's a BJJ black belt training under Nova Uniao, uh, spending a lot of time, obviously, with Jose Aldo during the prime of his career. Uh, but I just am not overly impressed with him. Uh, he has a sketchy gas tank. Uh, you know, he can be controlled from the top position. Uh, a guy that plays a little bit too much with his guard, uh, especially when his opponents are looking to just grind him out from that top position. If they have good enough submission defense, they should succeed in being able to just keep him on his back and uh, eat up some clock time and some control time on landing some good enough damage uh, and that's pretty much how he lost his one and only fight uh, where he has in the lost combo where he had a solid first round of top control but in the second and third rounds he was unable to do much uh, didn't seem to have the gas tank to do so either uh, and he's not really that dangerous in the striking realm uh, uh, either at least not later on in the fight early in the fight has some pop 
But if you're able to withstand that, stay safe, wear on him, you should be able to grind him out in the last half. And that's why I like this matchup for Mark D.A. Casey. He had an unfortunate result back in July where he had an accidental headbutt that turned into a submission opportunity for Joel Alvarez, and he was forced to tap that night. Uh, and then even before that, he got absolutely starched, uh, or at least whooped, by Michael Johnson over 15 minutes as he was unable to secure any takedowns as uh, Johnson uh, snuffed every single one of them and then made him pay on the feet. DKC is normally a flashy striker, um, but over his last couple wins, he's been looking to take opponents to the ground. You're talking about over the span of two fights, this guy landed 19 takedowns and controlled 26 of 30 minutes of cage time. That's what it seems that D.A. Casey is trying to lean on at this aspect of his career. And if he has that legitimate of a grappling advantage over his opponents, why not? Um, especially the the only thing I'd like to see him kind of improve uh, is his confidence in his striking again. I think that's what got him in trouble in the Michael Johnson fight because he kept overextending himself trying to take the fight to the ground all the while. Johnson was stopping the takedowns and then beating him up on the feet. But DKC is a solid striker, just needs to learn to blend the game a little bit better against his better of uh, foes, and from there he should be able to uh, really get some good work done. I think we can see that of him this weekend, and I'm kind of surprised that the line is dropping as much as it has. The last time I checked the line, we are getting about minus 130 on Mark DKC, and I think that that's a solid spot. I think that's a gift of a spot uh, to take DKC here, as I believe he has good enough submission defense to thwart the offensive attacks of Fernandez on the mat. But once they uh, uh, start to get into deeper waters, I think D.A. Casey will find it easier and easier to control Fernandez on the mat and uh, do some good work from on top. I think D.A. Casey is obviously good enough in the striking realm to deal with the early set that Fernandez might try to implement with his striking. But for the most part, I think we're going to see D.A. Casey drag this fight to the ground and grind him out over 15 minutes, getting his hand raised by decision. Next up, we're going to go with Eduarda Maura going up against Montserrat Ruiz. Maura obviously making her UFC debut here after she earned her contract on week two of the contender series this past season when she took her opponent to the ground immediately and eventually found the finish four minutes into that matchup uh, and getting her hand raised. Her nickname is Ronda, and as I believe it has a lot to do with the fact that she kind of looks looks like her, but she also looks to take fights to the ground immediately and finishing her opponents from that top position. She's very strong. She's very physical for this weight class, which is why we saw her deal with her contender series opponent with such ease. I believe that her striking is still a little bit of a question mark, but considering that the UFC will likely give her some layups in her first couple of fights, she should likely go out there and just do what she's been doing on the regional scene taking her opponents to the ground, smashing them from on top, and continuously getting her hand raised. Her opponent this weekend, Montserrat Ruiz, is pretty much in a public enemy number one, it seems, with the management company that she's with because they continue to give her bad stylistic matchups. Obviously, we saw her get knocked out by Amanda Lemos a couple fights back, and then most recently, we saw her get absolutely whooped on by Jacqueline Armarine for about 12 minutes before Armarine was able to get the finish there. Now, Ruiz has taken on another bigger fighter who will likely have a grappling advantage over her and unless Ruiz can get her schoolyard head and arm throw going again I don't think she poses much off uh, offering or uh, opposition against a, a fighter like Mara uh, Ruiz is a little bit reckless in the striking realm and it's not really that threatening it just seems as though she is best when she's able to get that head and arm throw position and really start working from that uh, schoolyard bully uh, position whether it's trying to go for the armbar with her legs or just pound on her opponents with the open arm and uh, just just let all hell break loose. 
Unfortunately, like I said earlier, I think Mara is just going to be too big for her, too strong for her, and that should allow Mara to get this fight to the ground, and I think that will eventually allow her to get to a dominant position and get that finish over Ruiz. I think we're starting to find out that Ruiz is really a one-trick pony at this point in time, and I think this Mara fight will continue to showcase why that fact, or that is a fact. All right. Next up, we got another women's belt here between Angela Hill and Denise Gomez. Starting off on the Hill side, she's on a bit of a weird run right now. I believe she's 3-6 and six over her last nine fights. Most recently, she ended up losing a decision to Mackenzie Dern, who just seemed to say absolutely, you know, just, just fuck it. You know what I mean? And the fact that she uh, only lost the second round, but won 3, 4, and 5, she was able to just crash the pocket with big shots, um, really put it on Angela Hill in terms of just the recklessness of her striking and then eventually turn that into a takedown and then do what she does with the Brazilian style or Brazilian jiu-jitsu style that she has. But normally Angela Hill is a solid fighter in terms of throwing out volume uh, uh, with her striking and really doing good work from that distance uh, where she's able to just really touch up her opponents, uh, do some good damage from distance, but most importantly, put up a lot of numbers that it's hard to not give her a decision, especially when she has that volume advantage over her opponents we saw over her last two wins in 2022 where she defeated Lupita Godinez and Emily Ducati that she's still a very difficult opponent to deal with for up-and-coming prospects that are looking to break through to the next level you know she was a big underdog and I believe both of those fight again fights against Godinez and Ducati and she went out there and made a very good account of herself showcasing that she still has a lot of bite left in her even though she's 38 years old on the flip side for Denise Gomez, she's on a bit of a run here considering that uh, she lost her UFC debut against Loma Lukbumi, but since then has pulled off two finishes against Bruna Brasil. And then back in July, she finished Yasmin Yaragui in 20 seconds, uh, which was also Yaragui's first professional MMA loss. Denise Gomez trains out of the PRV team or PVR team from down in Brazil, which was most uh, famous by uh, Jessica Andrade, but she trains alongside her uh, significant other Carol Hosa and she showcases a very uh, aggressive striking style she likes to put big punches on her opponents and try to knock them out or try to take them to the ground and grind them out from that top position if she's able to establish that dominant position and has a good enough striking advantage or grappling advantage over those uh, foes of hers but I've seen her on the losing end of a lot of her fights even though she only has two losses on her record she's had a couple fights where she's been able to just withstand the grapple heavy approach of her opponents and then come back late and finish them in the third round but i think that she's going to struggle here with angela hill's volume style as hill uses her speed her volume and her uh just footwork to stay out of danger and really pick apart denise gomez from distance i don't think that gomez's wrestling game is good enough to really do some good enough work from that top position or hold angela hill down for an extended period of time which will allow hill to just operate at distance and as long as she doesn't get knocked down suffer a major cut i think for the most part she should be able to have her way with uh, Gomez here. So give me hell, and I think she's a pretty good underdog spot for this uh, UFC Sao Paulo card. Next up, we got a light heavyweight bout between Vitor Petrino and Modestus Bukowskis. We'll start off on the Petrino side, who has absolutely won me over over his last couple of fights. I had a lot of question marks about the guy, as I believe that he had a sketchy gas tank, but he has shown that he has a solid enough gas tank for this heavy, light heavyweight division. Uh, being able to showcase that he can still battle through a little bit of fatigue by using his explosiveness and getting back to his striking realm, where he usually has an, a... a 
uh, an advantage over his opponents. But we saw in his last matchup against Marcin Prakniel that he's really working on his jiu-jitsu game, which is where he was taking down Prakniel over and over again in that matchup until he was able to lock up an arm triangle choke in the final round of that fight. I suspect that we'll see him try to utilize that type of approach here against the striker and Modestus Bukowskis, who's been very successful since returning to the UFC. But also, he got cut from the UFC back in September of 2021 after that horrific knee uh, injury that he suffered at Khalil Roundtree's expense. Um, or sorry, at his own expense from Khalil Roundtree. But he went back to the regional scene uh, in November of 2022, picked up two big wins as well as capturing the Cage Warriors title. And then he eventually got that call back up to the UFC to take on pa- uh, Tyson Pedro earlier this year where he went out there and pulled off the upset and got his hand raised. I believe he deserved to lose the Zach Paunga fight, which was back in June, but he did a good enough job in terms of landing his own damage and showcasing why he is at least, uh, you know, a middle tier uh, fighter that deserves to be on the UFC light heavyweight roster. However, I think he's going to struggle with the speed, power, and explosiveness of Petrino Early, who could translate that either into a knockout or he can utilize his grappling advantage here, taking Bukowskis to the ground and grinding on him from that top position. I like Petrino a lot in this spot, and I'm kind of surprised that he's only around that minus 200 range at the time of this recording, uh, and I think that's a damn good spot to jump in on him, uh, especially as I believe he is much better than Bukowskis, even though Bukowskis might have an experience advantage over him. All right, moving on to the next fight. We got Elizio Zaleski going up against Renat Fakhradinov. We'll start off on the Zaleski side, who's coming off of a victory over Abubakar Nurmagomedov from back in June, where he was able to ward off the grapple-heavy approach and do some good enough work on the striking room, where he was able to get his hand raised. Even in the fight prior to that against Benoit Saint-Denis in October of 2021, he stuffed the majority of takedowns and put an absolute beatdown on Benoit Saint-Denis that night, showcasing why that Zaleski could still be a very dangerous prospect even at 36 years old, 37 the week after this fight. But I believe that Renat Fakhradionov is another type of grappler that he is not ready for at this time. The 2022, sorry, 22-2 Russian uh, is coming off the biggest win of his career when he submitted Kevin Lee back in July with a guillotine choke in 55 seconds. He landed a big shot that caused a desperation takedown out of Kevin Lee, which left the uh, neck open, allowing Renat to take that back on home with him and getting his hand raised, like I said, by quick submission. Normally, Fakhradionov goes out there and grapples at his opponents into the mat not giving them even a moment to try to get uh, any type of success or offense off of their own allowing him to complete takedowns and get a wealth of control time Uh, I believe it was uh, like 28 minutes uh, of control time over the 30 minutes that he had the first 30 minutes that he had in the UFC cage but he's very strong uh, chains his attempts together very well and his cardio is very high level which was why I believe he can put on a pressure on Zaleski that Zaleski will be unable to keep up with it'll be I think it'll be easy for Zaleski early to kind of fend off the takedown attempts, but I think as this fight gets into deeper waters, it'll be harder and harder for him to do so, allowing for uh, Fakhradinov to enjoy a lot of top control time and winning this fight by decision. The line, a little bit wide at minus uh, 375, I believe the last number I saw was, considering that this will be the toughest test of Fakhradinov's career, but I still believe that Fakhradinov can go out there and implement his style without too much resistance, allowing him to get his hand raised, like I said, by decision. All right, next up, we got Victor Hugo going up against Daniel Marcos. 
Victor Hugo just earned his UFC contract on the contender series this last year, and that extended his winning streak to 13. He is nicknamed Striker, although he often looks to grapple and also has a lot of leg lock type victories. That obviously was in play when he got the knee bar victory over his opponent uh, on the contender series, uh, earning his shot to the UFC, as I said. Uh, normally, he's a low volume but very explosive striker, but it's often that he looks to go to his wrestling, which I really don't think is that high level, especially with him coming to the UFC at this point. I honestly didn't understand the big whoop and as to why the UFC decided to bring him into the contender series, but he made good on his opportunity and now he's in the UFC, but I think we'll see him slowly start to get exposed as he he takes steps up the ladder. His opponent this weekend, Daniel Marcos, extended his flawless undefeated record to 15-0 earlier this year when he went up against Davy Grant and edged out the veteran on the scorecards, even though a lot of people thought he deserved to lose that fight. I thought that we could have seen a little bit more of a aggressive approach from Marcos, but maybe he was a little bit scared of the big power that was coming his way against Davy Grant. But Marcos has shown a lot of different sides of his game, but most, most recently his striking over his first couple of fights in the UFC as well as his contender series fight. He utilized a very heavy calf kicking approach which allowed him to immobilize his opponents and then go from there and let his hands go landing the bigger and more heavier damage. But on the regional scene this guy has been known to go out there grind his opponents to the mat finishing from, finishing from that top position or even going out there and getting his hand raised by decision. I think he's way more complete than Hugo at this point in time. And I think that he can go out there, stuff the takedowns of Hugo, and then touch him up on the feet, out-voluming him, and slowing him down with a calf-kicking approach that he likes to implement. Give me Marcos, and I think Marcos could actually get the finish later on in this matchup. Next up, we got Elvis Brenner going up against Esteban Ribovics. Very, very fun fight here. Brenner could absolutely go out there and uh, just showcase the 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 skill set that he has especially considering the two wins that he has in the UFC he was a pretty big underdog in however the last matchup against Guram Kutatuladze he was down on all three judges scorecards even though he was quite competitive over the first two rounds but he managed to dig deep and get a finish in that third round overwhelming the gassing and slowing down uh style of Guram Kutatuladze and getting his hand raised. Brenner is a BJJ black belt training under the same camp as Charles Oliveira, but he doesn't often show a grapple-heavy approach, usually, usually relying on his striking to go out there and hurt his opponents and trying to outvolume them. He also seems to have solid durability considering the shots that I've been seeing him take over his last couple of fights, and he does not give up on himself. He has a knack for battling back from adversity and still going out there and getting his hand raised. His opponent, Esteban Ribovics, training under the Kill Cliff FC team, has gone out there and lost his UFC debut, which he took uh, Loic Radzibov on short notice, but then went out there and had a solid statement in his second fight against Kamuela Kirk. He dropped the first round after getting taken down and controlled, but the next two rounds were him going out there and laying the smackdown on Kamuela Kirk in between Kirk taking him down and then Ribovics getting back to his feet. And that's kind of where the issue with Rebovix stands is the fact that Rebovix has a little bit of a sketchy takedown defense game. And I think that fighters with a better skill set and better gas tank than a guy like Kamwila Kirk can go out there and really take advantage of that and use that against Rebovix. We saw Radzibov do it, even though Rebovix did manage to get up at certain times and still get off on his damage. I think that Rebovix really needs to work on that takedown defense game. His get up game, not that bad. 
but his takedown defense, very, very sketchy, and that could definitely get him into some issues. And that's where I'm kind of struggling here in terms of taking him as the underdog in this spot. As I was studying this fight, I really expected to take Rebovics, but it's going to be hard to really trust him, especially against Brenner, who I believe has a good enough jiu-jitsu game to control Rebovics for an extended period of time, similar to what Kirk was able to do in the first round of their matchup. I think Rebovics is the better striker here, but I think that Brenner can stay competitive enough in that striking realm, but it just comes down to whether he will implement the grappling or not. It's tough to have a lot of conviction on Brenner, considering he doesn't often look to take fights to the ground and utilize that approach, but knowing that that's his way to win this fight and the key to his victory, I'd be surprised if he does not look to try to implement that here and try to get his hand raised over the dangerous striker that is Rebovics. And I think so much so that Brenner could potentially even get a finish by submission if he looks to attack that grappling enough here. So give me Brenner and Brenner by submission, but not a whole lot of confidence concerning he's not known to go out there and grapple his opponents into the mat. Next up, we got Ismael Bonfim going up against Vince Pichel. Very fun fight here as Bonfim actually had his 13-fight winning streak snap last time around after a relentless grapple-heavy attack from Benoit Saint-Denis. Bonfim was showcasing great takedown defense and laying down the smackdown on the feet with the striking advantage he had in that fight. But it was bon, uh, Benoit's relentlessness in terms of just attacking the takedowns and then eventually working to the back of Bonfim and getting the rear naked choke victory with dying seconds in that first round. But Bonfim normally has solid takedown defense and his striking is where he shines most, where he throws down with uh, big output, big combinations and really stinging shots that hurts most of his opponents. And then, like you know, like we saw against Terence McKinney, we saw him go out there and eventually get a spectacular flying knee knockout uh, over McKinney in his UFC debut. Bonfim is only 27 years old, but has 23 fights of experience against legitimate opponents, even on the regional scene. He had a very tough opponent on the contender series uh, against uh, Abbasov. Uh, but still managed to get his hand raised in a fight that was very close over 15 minutes, but it was Bonfim landing the more damaging blows. It's his striking that is most impressive, even though he has a BJJ black belt. Um, on the flip side, Vince Pichel coming in at 40 years old is coming off a year and a half long layoff where he was uh, forced to sit on the sidelines due to a second hip surgery that he's had to take. He tried coming back earlier this year, but was forced out of his matchup as he believed he was coming in too soon and did not give himself enough recovery, but now feels like he's ready to go out there and throw down in these later years of his career. It seems He seems like one of those guys that tries to push his body further than his body can take him, especially at the old age that he's currently at. He's still very tough to deal with. He really gives a lot of resistance to his opponents, just as we saw against Mark Madsen. But if you are technically better than him in certain spots of the game, you could definitely take advantage of that and get the better of him. I do like Bonfim in this spot. Obviously, he's a chalky favorite at this point in time. Uh, Pichel will make it dangerous for him early, but I think that Bonfim is danger enough, dangerous enough himself with the striking that he should be able to take advantage of the wild striking of Pichel, landing the more technical strikes, and then eventually finding that finish probably in the second or third round. I love Bonfim in this spot, and I especially love him to win this fight inside the distance. Next up, we got Rodolfo Vieira going up against Armin Petrosian. Very intriguing matchup here as uh, obviously we got a grappler versus striker. We'll start off on the grappler side of things as uh, we talk about Rodolfo Vieira uh, who took advantage of a completely bonehead move on the behalf of Cody Brundage last time around as Brundage tried going out there and jumping guillotine against the mastered PJJ specialist like uh 
uh, Rodolfo Vieira, and Vieira took full advantage of that, taking the fight to the ground and then eventually getting the arm uh, triangle choke to get the win. That first round was very tough for Vieira as Brundage had him in some very bad spots, hurting him badly continuously, but Vieira stayed in there long enough, utilizing his jiu-jitsu to nullify some of the strikes and then eventually uh, worked to get that finish in the second round. But it's been a roller coaster ride for Vieira over the last several fights for him in the UFC. He's been exchanging wins as lo- wins and losses since his debut back in, or sorry, his second fight in March of 2020, uh, where he picked up the arm triangle choke over Saperbeg Safarov. Then he ended up losing fights to Anthony Hernandez and Chris Curtis, uh, while also defeating Dustin Stolzfus and then most recently Cody Brundage. We know what Vieira's game is. He has tried to put on a, a striking heavy approach as he showcased in the first round against Dustin Stolzfus. Uh, that was mainly to try to conserve his gas tank, which has been uh, the issue throughout his career. But it's still not good enough for him to go out there and and win fights uh, against higher levels of competition. Uh, His opponent, Armin Petrosian, is one of my favorite fighters in the uh, game, considering he comes from a kickboxing background, but has done a great job in terms of developing a defensive grappling game that even if he finds himself in bad positions on the mat, the guy can still go out there, stay safe on the mat, work back to his feet, and then get back to his striking prowess. He throws in combinations, and he picked up a great victory over Christian Leroy Duncan last time around, which extended his winning streak to two. He looks to extend that winning streak to three this weekend over Adolfo Vera. And we're going to, well, it's obviously very clear how this matchup will likely go. It's one of two ways. Either Vieira gets this fight to the ground and does a good enough job in terms of getting to a dominant position and getting a finish, or Armin Petrosian is able to keep this fight upright or work back to his feet if he does get taken down and then put the beating on Hodolfo in the striking room. I don't have the most amount of confidence on either side considering that this is probably the most dangerous submission artist that Petrosian has faced, but I feel that Petrosian can still do a good enough job in terms of keeping this fight upright as Vieira's wrestling game still needs a little bit more work, allowing Petrosian to keep this on the feet, utilizing his striking his, um, uh, advantage, and eventually finding the finish. What I like the most here, fight doesn't go to decision, as I think that Petrosian can put enough damage to put Vieira out. I'm just a little bit skeptical considering that there have been fights of Petrosian where he's had a significant enough striking advantage over his opponents, but has yet to get the finish. But considering the stylistic clash here, considering the lack of striking and lack of cardio from Vieira, I expect Petrosian to eventually muster up a finish in the second or third round. But like I said, favorite prediction here would be the fight does not go to decision. All right, next up we got Kyle Bahayo going up against Abus Magomedov. Uh, Bahayo, obviously a very streaky fighter right now. He's on a 14-fight winning streak, or sorry, looking for his 14th straight victory this weekend as he continues to impress every time he steps into the cage. Last time around, we saw him grapple Mihail Oleg Shejuk to the ground and eventually get a submission in that second round. But he's also had fights in the past where he's completely fine to just lay and pray and win fights over 15 minutes with his grapple-heavy approach. He's very smart in terms of being able to close the distance and look for quality takedowns where he can eventually get his opponents to the mat and then do what he does from that top position with his control, slowly passing tomorrow dominant positions, but putting an emphasis on position over submission, not giving up these spots for his opponents to get back to the striking room. His cardio looks very good, which allows him to do this over 15 minutes if that's what's required of him but I'd also like to see a little bit more of an aggressive striking approach from him or sorry a little bit more of an aggressive uh, knack for finishing especially if he hopes to get the eye of the UFC it's very intriguing that there is another um, 
prospect on this card who has not been in the UFC as long as him, but it seems like the UFC is favoring the other prospect over him, considering that the other prospect is more knack or, or, or more keen to, to go out there and get the finish. So Kyle, maybe this is a message sent to him that he needs to get more more finishes, be a little bit more entertaining if he hopes to get more rub from the UFC. But at the end of the day, what matters the most is what's on your record. And as long as Bohayo is getting wins, it's inevitable that he will eventually get a title shot. But he needs to do good this weekend against Abus Magomedov, who's looking to bounce back after getting finished by Sean Strickland earlier this year. Magomedov went out there and got, uh, you know, utilized his power striking style, but did a very poor job in terms of managing his gas tank as we saw him start to slow down in the third and fourth minute of that fight allowing Strong Strickland to put punches together and eventually get Magomedov out of there early in the second round. Magomedov is very explosive and very long for his division as well which is why he has very uh, a very good kicking game from distance utilizing that front kick up the middle but also high kicks to hurt opponents from distance. His takedown defense and takedown game is kind of questionable still as I don't think we've seen him effectively use it recently against legitimate opponents but this will be a solid test for him to see whether he has enough chops to fend off that type of approach i personally don't think that we'll see him fend it off i think we'll see bohayo successful with taking this fight to the ground and really wearing on magomedov which will eventually uh open up uh, a finishing opportunity for bohayo in the second or third round I really like Bohayo on the spot because he does a great job in terms of staying safe in the striking realm as we don't often see him getting hurt in that realm as he does a great job in terms of changing levels when his opponents throw big shots and then he gets on the hips and eventually lands his takedowns. So like I said, I think Bohayo weathers the early storm of Magomedov, wears on Magomedov and eventually finishes him in the second round. Next up, we got a heavyweight matchup between Rodrigo Nascimento and Dontel Mays. This is of a rematch of a matchup that took place a couple years ago where Nascimento was able to get Dontel Mays to the ground and get a submission victory. I have no re- or no idea why this fight ended up getting matched up again, considering that there isn't really a need for this matchup to be made again, considering how dominantly Nascimento was able to get that finish, uh, which was back in May of 2020. I believe that was the second event for the UFC after they came back from uh, the 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 whole COVID lockdown. Uh, since that matchup, Nascimento is uh, 2-1 and 1-0 no contest. That no contest was obviously his knockout victory over Alain Baudot, but he was unfortunately suspended after that fight uh, and was sitting on the shelf for over 14 months before returning to action and being on this two-fight winning streak that he's currently on. He has a very good kicking game, or sorry, a very good striking game in terms of the power and pressure he puts on his opponents, but I think he is best when he's able to drag his opponents to the ground and control them from that top position with the weight and crushing pressure that he brings, like I said, from that top position. I think a lot of the success in his game can be attributed to the fact that American Top Team has done a great job in terms of utilizing his style and just optimizing it in terms of the types of game plan and approaches that he normally has in his fights. If he can continue to do that, he could find himself in the top 10 of the division where he could potentially find himself getting a title shot if he's able to muster up a couple more wins. He's only 30 years old. He turns 31 at the end of November. He's in the prime of his career, especially considering the heavyweight age for when they usually get those shots. 
His opponent, Dontel Mays, is coming off a knockout victory over Andre Arlovsky back in June, but before that had lost two straight fights, uh, the, if you include the no contest from Hamdi Abdel Wahab, which has eventually changed to a no contest due to a failed drug test. But even though Augusto Sakai fight, he got completely outworked in that fight. The Arlovsky fight, he won the first round doing, doing a good, good enough job with his power and explosivity, eventually leading to that knockout on the second round. But Mays is one of those guys that's just good everywhere, but not great at anything specifically. He also has some questionable fight IQ concerning some of the things that we've seen him do. And I think that this is just a very bad stylistic matchup for him going up against a guy in Rodrigo Nascimento, who's already done big damage and finished him in the past. Again, I don't really see where Mays will be able to get the win here. The only way I could potentially see that is if Nascimento is a little bit too confident in his striking realm and Mays could potentially replicate what Chris Dawkins was able to do to Nascimento a couple fight back a couple fights back when he knocked out Nascimento. But I think Nascimento uh, at this point in his career is a little bit too experienced, a little bit too smart, and that should allow him to muster up a takedown here, which will get Mays to the ground. And whether it's in the first round, in the second round, or even the third round, I think that will see Nascimento finish Dante Mays once again and get his hand raised by submission. All right. Moving on to the co-main event, a fight that I'm very excited for considering that I think that Gabriel Bonfim is one of the best, if not the best, prospect that we have on the roster. He takes on veteran Nicholas Dalby. We'll start off on the 15-0 Gabriel Bonfim side where he's finished both of his opponents in less than 73 seconds. His uh, both uh, in the UFC, I should say. His first opponent, he finished Munir Laziz in 49 seconds with a mounted guillotine. And then in this following matchup in July against Trevin Giles, he hurt him badly and jumped on the guillotine choke to get the finish a minute and 13 seconds into that first round. This guy is a very, very fun striker, but his jujitsu is seeming to be the reason he ends up getting his hand raised recently. He's on a four-fight streak of just getting... Uh, uh, submission finishes, but a variety of finishes too. You're talking about Darce choke, Von Flu choke, and then obviously his patented guillotine chokes. He has great timing in terms of being able to latch on to his opponents, and you know that when he is jumping guillotine, it's because he knows that he has it on and is not going to be wasting many opportunities. But it's really his striking that allows his submission game to work well, because he does so good in the striking realm, hurting his opponents that he draws out bad takedown attempts from them, allowing him to lock up those chokes and get those wins. This guy is so freaking good, and he's only 26 years old. He just turned 26 back in August. I think he has a ton of potential, and I think this is a guy that we'll be talking about in championship uh, contention if he can continue to get his hand raised uh, and probably even do so uh, getting into the top 10, top 7 of the division, maybe even by the end of 2024 if he stays busy enough. Uh, on the flip side, for Nicholas Dalby, you're talking about a guy that's currently riding a three-fight winning streak, and he uh, has won all of those fights by decision. He's had a decent run since returning to the UFC after being cut back in 2018. Uh, since returning, he currently has a 5-1 and one record with one no contest. I believe that one no contest came due to the fact that, um, I believe there was a failed drug test in there. Uh, regardless, 
Uh, Dalby looking as good as ever, even though he's 38 years old, turning 39 in the middle of November. He uses a combination of grappling as well as a karate-style striking game, uh, but I think he's going to be in trouble against the higher level of the division, especially considering the physical advantages he's had over his last couple of opponents. Claudio Sova, old, has bad gas tank, and really doesn't have anything other than a jiu-jitsu game. Wally Alves slows down, obviously, couldn't really get much off on his own right, and then Muslim Salikov, older, doesn't really have an overall game either. But now facing a young stud like Gabriel Bonfim, I think we'll really see whether Nicholas Dalby is a you know a Cinderella story at this point in time, or if he just had a good luck uh, against uh, the the level of competition he's been recently going up against. I'm gonna go with the Bonfim side as I think that obviously he can go out there and hurt Dalby badly, and I think that he can eventually get the finish as well. Uh, and I think it will come from another desperation type takedown from Nicholas Dalby after he realizes that he can't hang in the striking realm against a guy like Bonfim. Give me Bonfim, Bonfim inside the distance, and I think it's going to look pretty bad. <laughs> All right, that brings us to our main event where we have the hottest prospect in the UFC, 19-2 Jailton Almeida going up against 27-11 and Derek Lewis. Now, this matchup was originally supposed to be Jailton Almeida against Curtis Blades. Unfortunately, Blade suffers an injury and is unable to make the date. Almeida is on a killing streak right now, especially in the UFC since making his debut. He is riding a six-fight winning streak, or sorry, five-fight winning streak, uh, with the majority of those last wins coming in the heavyweight division. I believe his first fight in the UFC was down at 205. He even weighed 203 pounds that night. But considering that he was having trouble finding opponents to fight, he's now decided to stay up at heavyweight and is completely fine, which is even fighting in the 210s to 220 zone so that he can still go with our fight and doesn't have to worry about cutting weight. In his last fight, he came in weighing 231 pounds, showcasing that he is really settling into the heavyweight division, but it's really his strength and explosivity that makes him so dangerous at this position or at this uh, uh, division, which is why opponents struggle to deal with him. He's very strong when he is able to implement that top position, get the takedown, and just rain down big shots until his opponents either give up their back and he can sink in a rear naked choke, or he just postures up and rains down big ground and pound, getting early stoppages. He hasn't really even been tested or hurt badly since uh, joining the UFC, and he looks like one of the most dangerous uh, opponents uh, or or prospects that we've seen in a long time. And dangerous, I mean guys that finishes guy, uh, people in there very easily without feeling too much adversity in return. His opponent, Derek Lewis, is clearly taking a, doing a favor here for the UFC, but he doesn't care whether he wins or loses at this point in his career, considering the fact that he's getting paid a handsome six figures no matter if he wins or loses in his fights. He goes out there and throws down with anybody that wants to throw down with him. You're talking about guys like Sergey Spivak, Sergey Pavlovich, Chris Dawkins, Curtis Blades, Alexei Olenek, Alir Latifi, Marcos Algerio, Delima, Cyril Gan, Curtis Blades. He just goes in there tries to get his knockout. If he's unable to get the knockout, he more often than not gets finished himself. It was very impressive to see him land that flying knee to start off his fight last time around against Rogerio de Lima, ending up allowing him to get that TKO finish 33 seconds into that fight. But we know as he faces more dangerous opponents, it's going to be harder for him to do that. And that's exactly what he's facing here in Jialton Almeida, who should have no problems taking Derek Lewis to the mat. And then from there, pounding him from that top position, allowing Almeida to get another first round stoppage. 
I really like Almeida in this spot. I really think under one and a half is probably the way to go, as I don't think that Almeida will be looking to lay and pray in this spot, especially in front of you know his uh, first. Uh, I believe it's going to be his first. Um, sorry, his second main event slot. Um, and also in front of his home crowd, I think he's going to go out there and try to get a quick finish here to try to get the crowd sent into a ruckus. Give me Almeida, Almeida round one, under one and a half, probably the safest in case Lewis pulls one out of his ass. But I think all this fight will finish in the first round. There you guys go. Breakdowns on all 13 fights for this UFC Sao Paulo card. Feels like took me forever to record this for some reason but regardless we get through it appreciate all the love appreciate all the support as always uh, again we got lfa breakdowns coming out uh later this week strictly on the patreon page otherwise we will be back next week to break down the ufc 295 card going down at madison square garden we got double header title fights can't wait to break that down for you guys appreciate you guys love you guys and see you guys throughout the week for even more content uh, focused on UFC Sao Paulo. See you guys. Peace. Last thing.